0: And I'm glad to preach to you today about why I love the church. And that is such an important topic because, you know, the church is becoming increasingly unpopular with a lot of people in the world. There's some politicians out there that don't like the church because we don't pay taxes. There are some people in your community, I guarantee you, who have been wounded by an individual in the church, and so they paint everybody in your church with the same brush and they say it's just, church just filled with hypocrites. They wouldn't darken the door of your church. There are a lot of people today who don't like the church because they think that we're too judgmental. In this day of no absolute truth, they think we're trying to impose our values on them, restrict their freedom, so they don't like the church. I think there are a lot of people who don't like the church because, though they don't know much about it, they've just been influenced by all the negative media stereotypes. You know what it's like when you go to the movies or you watch a television program. Somebody who is a dedicated Christian is hardly ever portrayed in a favorable light. They're almost always a rank hypocrite or a fun-hating legalist. And it seems to me that the media delights in exaggerating some of the failures of church leaders. Have you listened to or read the newspaper headings recently? Minister admits he lied about teen's death. Pastor indicted for misappropriation of funds. Priests arrested for molesting children. Kentucky preacher urges congregations to bring their guns to church. The governor who campaigns on a family values platform has an affair. You get the impression sometimes that if the world can just prove that enough people in the church are phony, then they'll feel vindicated in their unbelief. Let's be honest. It's not just the people on the outside who criticize the church. The church gets a lot of criticism from within in recent years if you've read much of christian literature especially the emerging church literature of the last 15 years you know the people from within are criticizing the church for being irrelevant uh, homophobic not really relating to the culture donald miller in his book blue light jazz says i grew up in the church but i found more authentic fellowship in a commune today than a church and he goes around the country apologizing for the church And you know what? Some of the criticism is valid because the church is made up of imperfect people like you and like me. But I'm going to be real honest with you. I am sick and tired of people trashing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk with you. I want to talk with you about why I love the church. What's right with the church? You know, you can focus on the 5% that's wrong with your marriage and make yourself miserable at home. And the Bible says we need to focus on the things that are good and honest and lovely and of good report. So I want to talk with you about what's right with the church. And hopefully when you leave in a few minutes, you'll feel better about being a part of Libby Christian Church and you'll be better equipped to defend it if you have to. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Matthew the 13th chapter? Matthew the 16th chapter, I'm sorry. Matthew 16, I'm going to begin reading with verse 13. This is a section of scripture where Jesus talks about his intent to build a church. Here's what he says. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Right out of this passage is one reason I love love the church. I love the church because I love its founder. Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock, on this truth that I am the Messiah. I'm going to build my church. I have some degree of affection for this old wallet that I'm carrying today. It wouldn't mean much to you. It's weathered. It's 20-some years old. But this wallet once belonged to my dad who passed away 18 years ago. And I loved my dad. So there's some things that belong to my dad that I cherish. Now, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to love the church. Because Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up, died for the church. Now folks, it is really important that you understand that Jesus did intend to build a church. Because in some hip Christian circles today, it's kind of the end thing to disassociate yourself from the church. And you'll hear people say, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not into organized religion. Or I'm a believer in Christ, but I'm not a part of the institutional church. I I don't go to church, man. I am the church, they'll say. And in these people's minds, when the Bible talks about the church, it's talking about the universal body of believers who belong to Christ, but it's not talking about a local congregation with buildings and budgets and bureaucracy and boring sermons. In the book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, the author suggests Church for you may be a small group of friends who occasionally meet at the local coffee shop and you get into a discussion about Jesus and, you know, you might find more authentic fellowship and worship in that small group than you ever would in a formal church. But the New Testament makes it clear When Jesus said, I will build my church, he was talking about a local body with structure that we can see. The word for church in the Greek was ekklesia, which means people who are called out of the world. And it's used over a hundred times in the New Testament, and 90 times it refers to a local church. The church in the New Testament was structured enough that there were elders who were to oversee it, there were teachers who were to edify it. It says that when one member suffers, the others are to suffer with it. When one member strays, the other members are to hold that person accountable. They were not to forsake the assembling of themselves together. So the church is not just an informal group that occasionally meets in somebody's coffee shop. The local church is the very heart of the purpose of God. In fact, the New Testament knows nothing about an unchurched believer. Acts 2:41 says when the people were saved, God added them daily to his church. I want to quickly show you three symbols that the Bible uses to describe Jesus' inseparable relationship to the church. The first is in 1 Peter 2, that compares the church to a building established on a firm foundation. It says you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, who is the chosen and precious cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone. The church is the building. You take a building off the foundation, it's going to collapse. The second analogy is in Ephesians 5.23 that says Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. So Jesus is the head, the church is the body. If there's decapitation, there's death. My favorite analogy is the groom who loves his bride. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The groom and the bride. The groom loves the bride. The groom sees the bride as perfect for a week or two. Now, the good news is when Jesus looks at Libby Christian Church, he doesn't see any bickering. He doesn't see any flaws. He sees you without blemish. You've been washed in his blood and you're cleansed. The church is the bride of Christ. And, and John three twenty nine says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. I performed a wedding years ago in which the groom loved the bride and it's a good thing he did because when she came down the aisle she was not very attractive. Now normally she's a very pretty girl but of all days on her wedding day she did not look good and the reason is she's one of those people when she gets nervous she bawls. You know some people will weep a little bit. She's a bawler. She sobs. When they played, here comes the bride, and the doors opened up, here she came, you could hear her all the way up front, bawling, sobbing, her, her shoulders were heaving, and as she got halfway down the aisle, I could see her face was all distorted, and black tears were st- cutting black t- chunks of mascara down her cheeks, <laughs> dropping onto her wedding dress. I looked over to the groom, and he was sobbing too, and I understood why. But I'm telling you, I could not get this girl to settle down in this wedding. She sobbed all the way through it. And finally I got to the place where I said, you may kiss the bride. And the groom did something I've never seen before or since. Instead of lifting her veil back over her head and kissing her, he pulled the veil out, ducked up underneath it, kissed her, and then he pulled that veil back down over her face. <laughs> But you know, that couple went on to a great honeymoon. That was years ago, and they've had a wonderful marriage. You know why? Because the groom loved the bride. And he saw beyond the tear stains and the distorted expressions to her heart. And you know what? You better not trash his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. He sees you as washed without stain or wrinkle or anything. He loves the bride. And the Bible says one day the groom is going to return for the bride. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you know what the Bible calls that? calls that the wedding supper, the married supper of the Lamb. And you know what the Bible says the first thing the groom is going to do for the bride? According to the Bible, first thing, he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. I think when the Lord Jesus appears, we're going to be so overwhelmed with emotion, we're going to be sobbing like babies. And he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I love the church. Because it's the bride of Christ. Here's the second reason I love the church. I love the church because I love the people in the church. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon. This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Simon, I'm going to make you a leader in the church. Simon Peter is going to be a leader in the New Testament church? What a flawed human being he was. Can you imagine the first century comedians making fun of Simon Peter? The, the John Stuarts, the David Letterman's of the first century saying... Simon Peter's a leader in the church. That's the same guy who said he walked on water and almost drowned. Simon Peter's one of your leaders. Isn't that the guy who said that Jesus is the Messiah one minute, and then next minute he said, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to die. Isn't that the guy who said he's going to die with Jesus, and then he denied that he even knew him in front of a little servant girl? That's one of your leaders? Yeah, Simon Peter. Imperfect, but Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now the purpose of a key is to open the door. And you know who preaches the first gospel sermon? Acts 2 opens the door and 3,000 Jewish people become Christians, a part of the church? Simon Peter. You know who preaches the first gospel sermon to Gentiles? Acts 10 opens the door to Cornelius and his family. Simon Peter. Keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he said, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. Interesting that Jesus says the same thing to all the disciples two chapters later in Matthew 18. What I take that to mean is, you're going to be, all of you, going to be so inspired by the Holy Spirit that when you speak these words of truth or you write these words of truth, if people respond favorably to what you preach about Jesus, they'll be loosed of their sins. They'll be granted eternal life. But if they don't respond favorably, they'll they'll be bound forever in their sins. But Simon Peter, imperfect soul, became a leader in the church. Now the church today is made up of imperfect people, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Some of the best people in the world are in the church. I will admit to you that there's some people I've met out in the world that I like better than some people in the church, but for the most part, the best people in the world are in the church. You know why? They start out very imperfect, but they aspire to be like the perfect Jesus, and they become more generous, they become more courageous, they become more moral, they become more like Christ as they grow to be like him. Let's say you're traveling through an unfamiliar city with your, with your family, late at night, 11.30 at night. Got your, old wife, got your wife and all, all your whole family with you. You look down at the gas station and say, my goodness, I, I'm about out of gas. So you pull off on an exit and to your chagrin, the only service station there is closed. The only way to get back on the expressway, you've got to go all the way around the block and it suddenly hits you. This is a rough section of town. Then to your horror, the car charge starts chugging, and you realize, I'm out of gas. You pull over to the curb. Now your heart's really pounding. And you see three large men begin to walk towards your car, and they're holding something in their hand. Now let me ask you, as they get closer would you feel better if they were carrying a wine bottle or if they were carrying a Bible? If they just come up from a bar or they just came from a Bible study, you've never met them. I dare say if they're carrying a Bible and you said they just came from a Bible study, you'd breathe a sigh of relief, you'd jump out and ask them if they would help. Because you would conclude that they're not out to do you bodily harm. There's no guarantee of that, but the odds are in your favor. You know Why? because some of the best people in the world are the people who know the Lord Jesus Christ and are part of his family, the church. I wish I had time to tell you about so many people, wonderful people that I've known at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I wish you could know them. Heather Bland was run over by a car when she was four years old. All kinds of internal injuries. And over the next 50 years, she had over 250 major operations. But she still has this joyous spirit, this trust in the Lord. Jim Katina, educator in our town. Beautiful wife, Vicky got Alzheimer's at age 58. Within a year, she didn't know his name. For the last decade, he's tenderly cared for her, fed her, dressed her, changed her diaper, walks her, takes her to the zoo sometimes three times a week because she loves animals. She cannot express one word of appreciation. But he says, I, I, I could never repay her for what she did for me. Had her funeral uh, just three weeks ago. What a great man, Jim Katina. Or Butch Dabney. Butch Dabney was one of our founding elders. And Butch is one of these guys. He's just a joyous person. He was our worship leader, like raise your worship leader. He had this spirit of joy, and it just permeated our church. And, you know, one of the characteristics of really good churches is that good churches are joyous churches. I stood in the back, and I watched you come in today. And you are glad to be here, most of you. A few exceptions. Uh, (laughs) But you know how to laugh. You know what? There's a joy in the Christian that nobody can take away because we know we got this promise of eternal life. And that was Butch. He was one of those guys always laughing and permeated the church. I was teaching a Saturday morning men's Bible study one day on death and dying. And I said, how many of you guys in here are over 70? And a bunch of guys raised their hands. I said, do you fear death more or less as you get older? They all said, oh, you fear death less. I said, why is that? And Butch said, because you got more friends in heaven than you got on earth. That's the truth, too, isn't it? Fisher Jones was in the same group. Fisher must have been 92, 93 years old at the time. He said, you know, Bob, I actually hope I die pretty soon. My friends are going to think I didn't make it. <laughs> 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 but, you know, you pick up the paper, and you don't read about Fisher Jones or Butch Dabney or Heather Bland or Jim Katina or You don't know, read about Phil and Tina or Matt. You read about the sordid side of life. And the people in the church are quietly the best people in the world for the most part. I guess that's the way it should be because Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. And salt hardly ever gets any credit. You notice that? You never get from the table and say, that's the best salt I've ever had in my life. No, you just kind of take it for granted. It does its work. But some of you would say right now, some of the people I respect most in this world are right here in this room right now. Some of the people, the greatest people I know, right here in this church. I love the church. Because I love the people in the church. Here's another reason I love the church. I love the church because I love its positive influence. Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock, this truth that I'm the Messiah. Simon Peter, you're going to have the keys of the kingdom, even though you're imperfect. And the gates of Hades, the gates of death and hell, are not going to be able to stop it. When I first started studying this scripture, I prepared an entire point on the durability of the church. Because here we are 2,000 years later, and people have attacked the church and criticized the church, and the church has been mismanaged, but we're still here, and we've still withstood all these problems. But the longer I looked and studied this passage, the more I realized this is not a defensive analogy. This is an offensive analogy. Let's say that there's a big football game coming up this fall between uh, University of Montana, is that right? The Grizzlies and the Montana State Bobcats. And it's for the league championship. And it's at Missoula and it's sold out. And I don't have a ticket. And I say to you, the gates of that stadium are not going to prevent me from that game. You don't picture somebody from Missoula coming out here and hitting me on the head with a turnstile. The analogy is, I'm going to go to Missoula, I'm going to get through those gates, I'm going to see that game. Now when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to stop the church, he's not picturing the church huddled in some sanctuary and Satan pounding it over the head and it's surviving. He's picturing the church going out into the world right up to the gates of hell and rescuing people from the edge of Hades. That's what the early church did. Acts 2, Simon Peter and the disciples went out into the streets of Jerusalem and Simon Peter lifted up his voice and he said, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man approved of God among you with miracles, wonders, and signs. But you, with the help of wicked men, have crucified him and slain him. But God has raised him from the dead. And God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the Bible says they were cut to the heart when they realized they had crucified the Messiah. And they said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people responded. You see, they rescued them right up from the gates of hell. Now, the religious elite of that day were threatened by that number they tried to stop the church and they said it is we're going to put up a gate it's now illegal for you to talk about jesus in public we'll arrest you and we'll imprison you we'll persecute you you know what simon peter and john said they said we've got to obey god not man we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard and even though they were under the threat of persecution they continued to preach And the gospel continued to spread. Acts 4 says there were 5,000 men in the early church. Must have been 20,000 people. Historians tell us there were as many as 100,000 believers in Jerusalem in a couple of years. And ever since that time, when the church goes out into the marketplace, and individually they say, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard, and they share the good news of the gospel in love, the gates of hell can't stop it. You think about the influence that the church has had in the United States of America. Now, America was not started as a Christocracy. But it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And early, they said religious freedom. There's, There's no gates against the church. And you think about the influence that the church has had over the years. Did you know that 106 of the first 108 colleges started in the United States of America were started by the church? Yale, Harvard, Princeton, others. Or look around most communities. Who starts the hospitals? Not the atheist society. The church. Who starts the orphanages and the homes for the elderly? The church. Who goes into prisons and has ministry to prisons? Who starts the crisis pregnancy centers and the, that help women in desperation? Who teaches ethics in business? The moral values that undergird business. The church. Long before the civil rights movement, as a little boy, I was taught to sing in church, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. When Hurricane Katrina ripped through the Gulf Coast, you know who was there first? Church. Who stayed the longest? Church. Who didn't rake any money off the top? You talk to people in New Orleans, they'll say, boy, the people in the church, they were the ones who helped. But in spite of this positive influence of the church, like in your community, I say I you've got a food pantry. You're, you're helping the community. But in spite of that, there are now powerful politicians who are saying, the church is a threat. We've got to put up some gates. So don't put the Ten Commandments on this wall of this courtroom. Don't have a Bible in this schoolroom. Don't pray at this public function. Don't put a manger scene in this public property. Don't say Merry Christmas in this department store. And you know what I think I, we need? I think we need Christian people like Peter and John are going to say, We could obey God, not man. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And you know, if we do that in love, the gates of hell will not stop the church. We're not to cower in a building and just rejoice that Jesus has saved us. We're to go out in the marketplace and share the news, and the gates of hell won't stop us. You think about the influence of Libby Christian Church in this community. I wonder how many people are going to go to heaven someday because of this church. I'm going to ask you to stand a minute. If you were saved, if you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because of this church, you were baptized in this church, just give testimony to that by standing up right now. Say, I want to thank the Lord for this church.
1: Wow, look at that.
0: That is great. Thank you. you may, let's give us people a, a round of applause. <laughs> now, a lot of you came to know the Lord in other places. I had half the First service stood up. Many of you in this service stood up. You know what? If just one person stood up, just one, that'd be worth every dime it ever took to build this church. Every prayer you ever uttered, every hour of service, just one. But there are hundreds going to be in in heaven because of this church. But that doesn't measure the influence of this church. How many marriages do you think have been kept together because of this church? How many people comforted when they were grieving? How many people, Christian people, encouraged to go out and continue to be faithful? How many suicides prevented? How many kids kept off drugs? How many people addicted that are now rescued? How many preachers been encouraged and sent out from this church? How many missionaries supported because of this church? You can't can't measure long-term the influence of this church. Gates of hell don't stop it. I want to close out by showing you a picture of my home church. If you've gone through uh, the Matthew Bible study, you might have seen this picture. This is a picture of First Christian Church, Meadville, Pennsylvania, 1941. Now look at these people. This is a pretty sorry-looking bunch of people. And this is Meadville, Pennsylvania that is not exactly the garden spot of the world. I mean, you're in a beautiful spot here. Meadville, Pennsylvania is about 40 miles south of Erie and they get lake effect snow. I think it's the third highest snowfall of any place in America. Kind of a depressed area now. I showed this picture to a bunch of preachers, and a preacher said to me afterwards, said, I grew up in Meadville. He said, I was in the eighth grade before I discovered that the Lord's prayer was not deliver us from Meadville. (laughs) So that's the kind of church that people will make fun of today. What kind of influence could this church have? But before you do that, I want to tell you about the influence of some of these people. On the front row is Sue Anderson. She was a church organist. She was married to Homer Anderson. They must have been having some marital problems on this day, but normally they got along. They're just faithful to the church. Homer's a mailman. They have a daughter, Donna Cole, who is an executive with Team Expansion, a mission organization now, sending out missionaries all over the globe. She has a daughter who's a missionary. She has a son, Homer and Sue's grandson, Tim Cole, who's in charge of all the new church plants in the state of Virginia for Christian churches over the last 12, 15 years. Done a spectacular job. Homer and Sue Anderson, First Christian Church, Meadville, Pennsylvania. On the far right is Stanley Betray. He married a little girl in the front row, Mabel Betray. This is 1941, just before America goes to war with the Japanese and the Germans. When World War II is over, Stanley and Mabel Betray feel the hand of God on them, and they go to Japan as missionaries to take the gospel to the enemy. They spend 30-some years of their life in Tokyo, Japan. There are Japanese people in heaven today. There are churches in Tokyo, Japan today because of First Christian Church, Meadville, Pennsylvania. In the second row are Edgar and Eva Pressy. Those two old-time names, Edgar and Eva. They're not very glamorous people, but they're faithful people. And Eva is holding in her arms a little baby boy named Arnold pressey arnold pressey is a preacher in north carolina today but i gotta tell you when he was a little kid his parents didn't know anything about discipline they could have used kenneth layman's whole video today uh and arnold pressey little boy was a holy terror he's one of those kids who say that kid is going to burn his church down somebody get him under control and when he was in fifth grade my dad taught him in fifth grade and my dad would come home from church a lot of times saying arnold pressey is going to wind up in a penitentiary someday it just you know it He's a preacher in North Carolina today. On the back row is Charles Ward, kind of a stern, legalistic elder. Everybody's a little afraid of him. But Charles Ward had a son-in-law who's a preacher. He's got a granddaughter who, Dorothy Hadenham was a missionary to Alaska. Got three grandsons in ministry today. On the front row are my mother and father. If you can see this picture clearly, you'll note that they're the only people in the entire picture smiling. I always say it because they haven't had me yet. They're holding, uh, the baby they're holding is my older sister, Roseanne, one of six children that my parents had. Roseanne was always single, never married, but she's a great Bible teacher. I, I wish you could have known my, my dad. My dad uh, was the 17th of 18 kids. His mother died when he was three years old. His father was a coal miner, alcoholic in southwestern Pennsylvania. So he, my dad grew up in a dysfunctional home tossed about from older sister to older sister did not know the Lord. He met my mother about 20 when he's 20 years old. She's a Christian. He gives his life to the Lord and never looks back. He breaks the cycle. He loves the Lord. He loves the church. He spends 35 years working as a blue collar worker in Talon Zipper factory in Meadville. And he scrapes to get by with six kids, but 10% of every paycheck goes to the church. When I was in the seventh grade, my parents helped to start a new church in the little community we lived that's about a third of the size of Libby, Conneantville, and uh, we started with 35 people in that church. My dad devoted to this church. First one there, last one to leave. But we had a preacher early on who didn't have a lot of integrity, and he skipped town, leaving a lot of unpaid bills. And my dad was so concerned that our church was going to have a bad reputation in the community, so my dad, in the late 50s, goes to the bank, borrows $2,500 to pay off all the preacher's bills himself. And then he takes a second job working in a sawmill to pay it back. Now, when you've got a dad like that, You're going straight into ministry whether you want to go or not. (laughs) So I became a preacher. I've got a brother who's a preacher. I've got two sisters who are married to preachers. I've got one sister who's a black sheep. She married a deacon. But you've got people that you're ashamed of in your family too. My parents have, I think, six grandsons in ministry today. On the back row is D.P. Schaefer, the preacher. D.P. Schaefer's son, Raymond Schaefer. Became the two-term governor of the state of Pennsylvania. Served on President Nixon's cabinet for a while. Would have been president of the United States except when Spiro Agnew resigned. Uh, President Nixon asked D.P. Schaefer to be vice president, or uh, uh, Raymond Schaefer to be vice president. And he said, no, the vice presidency is not worth anything. So he appointed Gerald Ford, and Gerald Ford succeeded President Nixon. But that's Raymond Schaefer, son of D.P. Schaefer. I show people this picture and they say, man, that was a great church. No, it was a very average church. 180 people is most they ever had. And uh, not too long after this picture was taken, they asked D.P. Schaefer, the preacher, to resign because it didn't seem like anything was happening in the church. But look at 70 years later. The influence of that church, all over the world. Gates of hell had not stopped it. Let me tell you folks something. There's nothing like the Church of Jesus Christ. What goes on here in the long run is more important than what goes on at the stadium in Missoula or the state capitol building or the university campus because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Nothing's going to stop it. Now here's my question for you, Christian church at Libby. When somebody looks at your picture 70 years from now, what are they going to say? After they get finished lo- laughing at the way your hair looks and how you're dressed, they're going to point says, that's my grandfather. Hadn't been for him, I don't know where we'd be today. We sure wouldn't be going to heaven. That's my mom. She gave her life to the Lord, broke the cycle, <laughs> turned our whole family around. That's our preacher. He's pretty ugly, but he had a lot of influence. <laughs> over... What are they going to say about you? Here's my challenge to you. Right out of Scripture. Don't grow weary in doing good. In due season, you reap a harvest if you don't give up. Thank you. God bless you.